Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to head performance and strength coach at the Sacramento Kings, Ramsey Nijem. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I'm really appreciative for Ramsey to give up his time to chat about his experiences in the NBA. So it's not something I've had loads of over the last 202 episodes, is people from the NBA coming on and um, coming on the podcast and talking about their experiences. So like I say, really appreciative of Ramsey with his open and honest views on what's going on at the Sacramento Kings. So in this episode, we chat about training load, which I know it's something that Ramsey has spoken quite a lot on recently, um, internationally, and also something that links in with his recent doctorate, which obviously means it's uh, very much on his mind at the minute. Also in this episode, we chat about recovery and dealing with the hectic schedule which the NBA throws up and how that affects what goes on in the weight room and how that's managed. So a really interesting chat with Ramsey, um, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. But just before we do get into this episode, I want to say a big thanks to Vald Performance for sponsoring this episode today. So if you haven't heard of Vald Performance, they are the guys behind the Nordboard, the Groin Bar, and the all-new Human Track. So if you haven't heard of either of them three products, visit valdperformance.com. Uh, I'll follow them on Twitter at valdperformance. So their all-new Human Track system is a motion capture system which integrates the Xbox Connect and four IMUs worn on both wrists and both ankles. So Human Track has been initially validated against the gold standard in Vicon with some really positive initial results with some more to come which will be openly available via the Valve Performance website when they do become available. So if you, like I said, if you are interested in getting to know about any of them three products, visit valdperformance.com or follow them on Twitter at valdperformance. So without further ado, over to the episode with Ramsey Nijem. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I'm delighted to welcome Ramsey Nijem to the podcast. Uh, so welcome to the podcast, Ramsey. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Did I do all right on that surname? I know I'm very conscious of... No, absolutely. Absolutely. Solid. You, you nailed Perfect. it. Nailed it. Nailed it. So I know you're in LA, which is obviously not where you're from, but where um, where do you work? What a bit of background on yourself, and then we'll have a little chat about um, what you do day to day, and then go from there. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, head, head performance and strength coach for the Sacramento Kings. So I live in Sacramento and uh, travel a lot during the off season. I wouldn't say more during the off season because obviously we travel so much during the in season. Um, and so part of that, those trips take me down to places like LA where I'm currently at now working with a few guys. Uh, so yeah, in LA and, or excuse me, uh, in Sacramento and uh, took over as the head strength conditioning coach uh, two seasons ago. Last season, they switched the title to head performance and strength coach. And we were chatting before, and uh, before we started recording here and, you know, I don't really know what the title changes are in our industry. Uh, sometimes it's, there's so many dang titles I can't keep up at this point. But uh, for the most part, the the role is, um, you know, I definitely oversee all the, the strength and conditioning uh, aspects. 
for the team, but um, keep my hands in the nutrition as well. We have a sport nutrition uh, consultant that I bring on on occasion. We have a couple chefs um, that we make sure we collaborate with often on on that front. Uh, and then really over the past few years, well, it started as really my perhaps one of my primary roles as the assistant was running our catapult systems. And so that's kind of transitioned into me essentially taking on a lot of sports science and the load monitoring stuff. So, um, you know, we'll look at some practice loads. We look at the game loads. Um, you know, we do wellness surveys. So kind of overseeing that portion as well. Uh, I wouldn't say that I'm a sports scientist. I'm definitely a coach at heart and I love nothing more than, than loading some, some barbells and coaching my guys up and the relationship side of that. But Part of, I think, trying to bring value in the role has brought on, you know, efforts on the nutrition end, efforts on the sports science end. Um, we brought in a sports psych to kind of chat with us internally about how we can prepare our athletes mentally. So really trying to keep my hands in a lot of different areas um, that I can affect the team, hopefully. But uh, for the most part, day to day function as the head strength and conditioning coach with the title of head performance and strength coach. Nice. So just for guys over here in the UK, maybe. Maybe haven't heard loads about or from people that work in the NBA. Just give us give us a bit of a rundown on what kind of staff structure you've got in the performance and medical area. Yeah, absolutely. So um, most NBA staffs, it's really changing actually, and I think a lot of it's a lot of the changes being influenced by uh, perhaps some models from overseas, um, but. For most of my time with the Sacramento Kings, we've had a director of sports medicine um, who was previously a head athletic trainer. So uh, athletic trainer um, turned director of sports medicine who really oversees all of the medical aspects, the MRIs, the physicals, um, the liaison between the doctors uh, and any of that kind of higher level medical stuff um, he'll handle. We also have a head athletic trainer who really functions as the head athletic trainer, so the primary clinician to oversee most of the treatments that go on and then uh, really manages the rehab. And, um, and although I'm heavily involved in that, you know, I always default to, to his expertise in that area. Uh, we have a massage therapist uh, who's a athletic trainer as well, so um, most of the time doing the manual therapy stuff, but also functions as an assistant athletic trainer when he needs to. Um, kind of take on, you know, whether it's the taping before a game or um, some of the treatments and modalities they're using. Um, so that's kind of that side uh, that, and they serve our Sacramento Kings. So the Sacramento Kings also uh, control a, a minor league team or what is termed the G League uh, over here. And that's the Gatorade League. So Gatorade bought the league. It was the D League Deve Developmental League and Gatorade purchased the league. And so now it's the G League. Um, so we also have an athletic trainer that services uh, those rosters. And then on the performance side, there's myself. I have an assistant, Evan Van Beesler. He's an assistant strength and conditioning coach. We have a G League strength coach, Ernie De Los Angeles. And then we bring on a seasonal intern. And so there's really us four um, who are tasked on the performance side with preparing these guys physically for, for the game. Uh, and then beyond that, obviously, like I mentioned before, we have a couple chefs. Um, I have, we have a sport nutrition consultant that we'll bring in. We have doctors involved, um, but kind of the travel party, if you will, is uh, three athletic trainers, one of which serves as the director of sports medicine, and then two um, traveling strength and conditioning coaches. Nice. So one thing that's, that I hear that's happening more and more over here is that guys are bringing their own staff into clubs or on the periphery of clubs. Is that something that goes on over there as well? 
Uh, you mean, do you mean in terms of like if a coach or a player comes to a team, do they bring their own staff? Yeah. So if uh, if you get a new player and they have a physio and a strength coach with them, or just a physio, and they kind of prescribe what they do, what they liaise with the club staff. Um, especially the bigger players may may do this. I'm just wondering if that kind of thing happens over there too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it certainly does, for, especially for for uh, you know certain guys. So um, you know, like uh, you know, big franchise players, I guess, if you will. And it's really an effort to not name too many names on that front. But of yeah, there's, yeah, sorry, uh, <laughs> no, nah, no worries at all. But yeah, like so, there is, I think, some flexibility within different clubs, and you know, obviously, if you're uh, one of the best players in the league and you have a guy that you've been working with, whether it's a physical therapist or physio or just a strength guy, uh, they usually do accommodate those things. And sometimes it's just likely because it's not worth the battle to, to upset a franchise player. Um, oh. I have been pretty fortunate in my career to not have to deal with that. So, uh, and I shouldn't say pretty fortunate because that really gives it a negative connotation. I'm sure that there is some, some, positive experiences within within those things but um yeah at least for me with Sacramento Kings uh we've never had you know whether it be a coach or a or a player that's come in and, and kind of brought their own person or staff um so I've been I've been real fortunate in that regard and I've been working with the same people for um four years now and that's how long I've been in the NBA so you know since I've been in the NBA I've had the pleasure of working with the same athletic trainers. And w- although we've added people, um, you know, the people that I started with are still here, and, and I'm fortunate in that regard. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Hopefully, I think I stitched you up there with that that question. Yeah, no we didn't name any players, so we're, we're all good. Um, just on, on back on to what you said about you're a strength coach that has the wears the hat of the sports scientist. And it's something that that's really interesting because that's something that's come up with a couple of people who I've chatted to around the 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 pretty new wave of sports scientists. I'm guessing the kind of old wave, especially here in the UK, were coaches who became sports scientists, but there's actually pure sports scientists now. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting you say that that benefits you being a coach that wears that hat. What kind of benefits do you think that kind of that background as a coach, being hands-on with the players, been building them relationships, allows you to bring to that sports science side? Mm-hmm. Does that make if that makes sense? What, yeah. what what kind of things, yeah, benefit you as a coach? Yeah, I mean, been a sports scientist. The first thing that always comes to mind, obviously, is, is just the trust that, that I'm able to have with the players. Uh, being being the, the strength, primary or the head strength conditioning coach day to day allows me to build the rapport that that I need and um, and gain the trust from them, and, and really allows them to be like you know more vulnerable at times. Uh, and so from a data collection perspective, I think it, it helps, you know, a ton on that front because, you know, guys know if I'm coming to them and I'm asking them for information, you know, wellness surveys, for example, um, or if I'm asking them to put on, um, you know, a wearable during practice, uh, they know it's coming from a good place and it's not coming from a, you know, hey, I'm a sports scientist, but it's really coming from, hey, I'm I'm just here to help you stay healthy and perform. And, and you know, that's true because I'm in the film room with you and I'm in the weight room and I'm barking at you and I'm talking about how this stuff is going to transfer and what I'm seeing in the games. Um, and so they know that it's coming from a, a really, you know, good place of, man, I really want you to be the best you can. And I think that this will help us get there. And because they trust me, they believe in that stuff. And so that helps, um, from the coaching side and, I think that's probably the biggest thing that that the biggest advantage I have with 
you know, coming from the coaching side or coaching background. Um, and then obviously in addition to that, because I do have the relationships, uh, you know, if I'm building reports out for management or for athletic trainers, or I'm communicating things um, to management, then usually what I'll try to do is communicate that stuff to the player as well. And because I already have the rapport and we're already chatting, um, you know, if within a, a text conversation, if I text them a graph of their workload for the week or something like that, uh, I think that they, they can appreciate that because it's coming from someone who, you know, they already uh, talk to daily rather than, you know, kind of like a sports scientist who may be playing in the background a little bit. So because I'm on the front lines, I think it just makes it a very seamless transition to get the data. And then obviously when I analyze it to communicate it back to them. Um, so now within there, there obviously are, you know, challenges, you know, the big ones in the NBA you deal with are, uh, first off, there's no wearables during games. So, and we can't control that. So, um, you know, that's one limitation, uh, new limitations now are within the collective bargaining agreement. Players actually don't have to wear, uh, any wearables. So they, technically can just refuse outright and say, Hey, I don't want to wear that. And, uh, on our end, we're not really in a position to, uh, debate or, co- or coerce with them. I mean, there is probably, um, some fine line of encouragement and education that can go on. And, you know, if you can educate the athlete on why you're doing things, they might be more willing to wear some of those things, but, uh, you definitely deal with some, some legal issues there if you if you step out of line and try to make an athlete do too much and so you are limited in what you're able to collect especially if certain guys just refuse but uh but we've been pretty good we've, we've had a good buy-in um guys usually are open to listening and, and doing what we ask of them because again it goes back to because it's coming from from someone who they view as more of a coach um i think they can appreciate it a little bit mm-hmm. so is that a new thing the uh, from the collective bargaining agreement about the wearables, not not having to wear them. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, last year was the first season, uh, and then within the player association, there's now a wearable committee who's kind of tasked with uh, evaluating certain technologies and then approving those. So yeah, I mean, even an extension of the player's right to refuse. There's also now a only a handful of companies that were allowed to actually request them to wear. Um, so if a company isn't wow. approved by uh, the wearables committee, then you know myself or other people in my position of the league technically shouldn't even be asking them to wear it. And then even if it is approved, the player still has the right to refuse. Uh, so you do have some obstacles as far as the sports science goes or the data collection goes. And uh, but usually with some good rapport and, and gaining the the athletes' trust and buying, you you should be able to overcome some of those obstacles. Definitely not all of them. Like. You know, I, I take pride in my relationships with my guys, but there's definitely been times when they just said, hey, man, I'm not wearing it today. And, you know, I'm not really in a position of, to fight with that. So um, there are those challenges. Interesting. So do you know the not to delve too deep, because I don't want to push you into saying something that you don't want to say, but what's, what's the criteria for for whether a wearable sh- uh, can be offered to a player or not? Yeah. Who decides that? Well, uh, so the Obviously wearable... committee, but who's on the committee? Yeah, um, the head of the committee, I believe, is, is someone who's been hired out by the Players Association. Um, and then I, I, I think it's a committee of three. Uh, I know two of them. I, I don't know who the third one is. Uh, the other person is more like an external person who doesn't work in the NBA. And then the third person, I'm not sure. They might be someone who works with NBA league offices. Um, uh, but they're really tasked. I think I think first line is, is – um, the validity of the technology. Um, their role is to determine whether or not a technology does what it says it does. 
Uh, and then there's a few more criteria, which I actually don't know off the top of my head. Um, and when they first kind of started the wearable committee, uh, it was something of interest. It was like, okay, well, this, this, this may be good because it could work out to where they're really doing a good job of, of both holding these companies accountable. Because, you know, as you know, a lot of these companies make a lot of claims that really haven't been supported by the literature. Uh, yeah. So, like, on that front, there's, there's some, some positive potential there. And then, but then on the flip side, too, it could be uh, that they're educating players and, and hopefully – um, you know, letting them know the potential of some of these technologies to help keep them, you know, healthy and performing at a high level. And so uh, we'll see kind of how it how it develops over the next couple of years for sure. But, you know, I, I, as you can imagine, when it comes to data and the NBA and for the most part, for the most part, professional sports, there's just so many legal hoops that you would have to hop through before you can really get um, the data that you want consistently. So, yeah, new, new challenges have presented themselves. Uh, over the past few years, but uh, you know, it's it's just all part of the developing nature, I think, uh, or developing environment of sports science in the NBA. Because when I started four years ago, I think we were one of the first teams with catapult, and you know, most of our guys wore the catapults, and uh, they didn't really know what it was. And you know, shoot, I was brand new to the team, so I was just learning, you know, what it was at the time. Uh, and so you fast forward just a few years now, and there's wearable committees, and there's approved technologies, and there's rights to refuse. So. Uh, it's definitely been developing. So how how has it developed in terms of what you're doing with Catapult over the last four years? What you how you reporting? Kind of what data you're collecting? What you're collecting compared to what you're actually using? How's that changed over the last few years? Uh, I would say we're definitely I think having more, um, a, you know, a better appreciation and understanding for some of its limitations. When I first got to the team with Catapult. Uh, you know, I was kind of handed this box of monitors that I've never even seen. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, the first week was reading all about it and reading some of the literature behind it. And um, and then what I was doing at the time was I was, you know, tracking live. I was building out playbooks for the for the team uh, and then creating reports based on those playbooks. So, you know, if we're going to, um, you know, if I'm going to a coach saying, hey, you know, we might want to look at a practice within this load range. Well, here's a list of all your plays or all your drills, excuse me. And now you can kind of build out your practice based on your drill plan uh, to really meet the goals that we would want. So that was like the, when we first started, that was really the goal. Uh, and I think as we've progressed with our understanding of technology, with our understanding of how this technology might fit within the NBA, uh, I definitely kind of. Uh, have become a little bit more flexible in the front. So, you know, it's really just conversations with the coaches. Hey, what kind of things do you want to see? Um, are you interested in, in me building out your playbook? Are you interested in me, you know, influencing some of the practice stuff? Uh, and, you know, over the course of at least my four years in the NBA, and this may not go for everybody, but, um, you know, there's definitely some give and take within there of what coaches want, what coaches need, what coaches are willing to do. Uh, and so really just gain an appreciation for that. So, you know, player load is the big one. We don't have the clear sky system, which has also been a huge limitation for us. Uh, and so although we've done some things to to match up our practice data with our game data in terms of regression, um, you know, it's still not perfect. It's not apples for apples uh, comparison, especially when you consider, you know, different tracking systems, different technologies. Um, reliabilities of those two things. So, so what, uh, so Ramsey? What do you use in games then? If you can't use variables? Yep. Yeah. And so in games, there's a camera system that 
used to be sport view it's now second spectrum so that that system has transitioned over the past year as well uh and so it's uh you know a camera based system above every every arena that tracks those players and obviously um you know, there may be some questions in terms of validity because there is no wearable. It just it tracks them. There's people checking players in and out and it just tracks them during the games. And that gives us GPS like data. So we get distances, we get speeds. And because we have those, we, you know, we get all the arbitrary unit um, metrics, um, a relative load of intensities, um, different bands of, of accelerations and decelerations based on the speeds of those things. Uh, so we're getting a fair amount of data post game. Um, every game, but because our our practice data system is is not the exact same system, there's obviously uh, you know a few limitations within there. Especially when you consider one of them is gives you GPS like data, whereas our catapult system uh, only gives us re, uh, accelerometry. So we get player low and we get some change of direction, um, but you know we don't get distance, for example. So we can't even do a simple distance by distance comparison practice to game right now. Uh, and so and we're, we're probably going to switch that up this season as we move forward or we'll probably end up with a practice system that gives us GPS data. And so uh, there's a few systems out there now, obviously. So we'll see which ones we decide to go with. And, and that'll be one way to kind of pair our systems up, obviously, to, to at least have similar metrics. There's still questions as far as technology and, and reliability and, and those things. But I think for us, first step is let's just make sure we got we can compare distance to distance. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Ramsey. Hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, we discuss some alternatives to wearables that are being used in the NBA to uh, track and monitor load in game situations. We also discuss a lot more about what goes in the weight room and how Ramsey tries to work around the hectic schedule that the NBA uh, consistently throws up. But just before we do get into part two, I just want to say a big thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So if you haven't heard Fatigue Science, I would highly recommend you to have a little listen to episode 174 of the Pacey Performance Podcast, which is an interview with Ian Dunican, who is a sleep expert. And in that episode, Ian goes into a lot of detail about the back end of the Fatigue, fatigue Science Ready Band and a lot about the biomathematical modelling, which is... Um, which is present in the ready band itself. So a little bit of detail on that um, in terms of how he's able to use that, use that modeling to advise teams and players and, and coaches uh, when they should be exposed to light, when they shouldn't be exposed to light when traveling and using the end in mind. So a game in the evening at seven o'clock and then working back from there when they should be training, when they when an optimal time for their training session, an optimal time for their sleep and working back through their travel schedule, which is what Ian kind of did for me on a, uh, on a trip to Australia back in February. So if you haven't checked that out, make sure you do 174, but also have a little look on their website. So fatiguescience.com and also follow them on Twitter at Fatigue Science. So over to part two with Ramsey and hope you enjoy. So let's move our attention to what happens in the weight room, which I guess is a, a real um, challenge when it comes to, like we said before, the kind of nine months non-stop of fixtures back to back to back, different cities, different states. Um, so how do you manage load in season? And if a couple of examples would would be absolutely great as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so for me, everything starts with those with those those game data or those game metrics that, that we talked about from Second Spectrum. Um, I start there as really kind of uh, my compass, if you would. It's going to tell me where I can go in the weight room. Um, we're fortunate with the Sacramento Kings um, with a young roster that a lot of our players are playing minutes. Um, and so that's good for their development and, and those types of things. Um, but what it also means is that, you know, we don't necessarily have two or three, four or five guys that aren't playing in games. And so therefore we can just push them, push them, push them in the weight room. Most of our guys are playing. Uh, and because you travel so much and play so much in the NBA that the majority of your, your loading, at least physical loading is coming from those games um, because you don't practice that much. And so because of that, we start there uh, just to appreciate what their game demands are. Um, and then we'll take that. Usually what I, what I start with is kind of like a, an acute chronic workload ratio um, perspective. I wouldn't say that I, I'm, you know, I would say it's more like a rule of thumb, if you will. It's not really, I'm not extremely rigorous with the idea of like, hey, if you're at 1.5 or above, then you're definitely in a red zone. Um, they've actually transitioned away from flagging players um, because of some of the literature that's, that's been coming out. Um, but we start there. And then what that gives us is an idea of, hey, can we stick with plan A? Do we have to go to plan B? Is there a plan C? Do we skip the weight room? Do we just get treatment and recovery? Um, or do we need to skip it all and just have a conversation with coach about minutes? Uh, so we start there. And so if a guy's coming in, you know, let's say he has a 1.8 acute chronic workload ratio. Uh, like I said, that may not necessarily be a red flag, but for me, it's definitely like, ah, well, let's definitely check in with this guy. You know, let, let's see what's going on. Because um, what that probably means is, you know, due to matchups or due to an injury, the player is begin has really entered a rotation of playing you know many more minutes than he's used to um, so we start there and then as we enter the weight room it's okay if plan a was you know we knew we wanted to touch 85 percent today in the trap bar uh, maybe we don't do that maybe we transition down to like a 65 70 percent and rather than doing a five by five or rather than doing you know three sets of four you know maybe we're just going to hit four sets of two and really just focus on speed and so you know, we start with that game load um, and then we transition to the idea of, OK, essentially, do we need to like taper this guy for the day in here? Uh, can we stick to our load? Is he not hitting the accelerations that we need in the game? Do we need to get him on the court to actually expose him to those things? Uh, and so, you know, as we appreciate the game load, it's going to drive our decision making in the weight room. And then I would, you know, I guess a conditioning perspective, but really to me, exposure, like I wouldn't consider like max effort sprints from a. a which technically it is conditioning, right? It's conditioning tissues for the demands of the game. But really, we just, we want to expose those things. Uh, so that's kind of how we do it. And so our big kind of switches might be anything from um, are we going to do more of a, a, a relaxed, quote-unquote, trunk um, mobility type session? Um, have they have they entered a rotation? And therefore, they're probably getting a lot more jumps than we're used to. So are we going to make sure we're not doing many jumps in here? Um, do we really want to put a lot of eccentric loading on them because they may be sore because their accelerations and decelerations in games have increased? Um, do we need to touch the 85% for the strength development today or strength maintenance today? Or can we back off of that and do speed work instead? Um, so those are the questions that come to mind, I think, as, as we as we manipulate our training programs in the weight room based on what we're seeing on the game load side. So is there anything in particular that you track like you said, you obviously mentioned the percentages. Is there anything in the gym that you track in terms of tech to make sure you're not yeah. overloading the players too much? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, so technology-wise in the NBA, we have, uh, or excuse me, with the Sacramento Kings, we have 
we have two elite forms on our squat rack, so we use those for velocity-based training. Um, and also as kind of a measure, a testing measure. So, um, you know, we might hit some numbers in September, you know, let's say, you know, 135 on the bar, let's just get some speed squat and you may move that at, you know, 1.6 meters per second. Uh, are we going to hit those things in January as well? Those are, you know, some things we'll use. Uh, but also from a loading perspective, right? If we're talking about, hey, this guy's had a really hard week, we still need to get that movement in. Um, we still want to get some strength training in, but we're going to back off on the load. Let's just make sure he's hitting one meter per second a day, and we'll just we'll just take that bar up until he can't hit that no more. And if he misses, you know, once or twice, okay, call it a day. Um, so we're using that to really manage uh, what we're exposing them to in the weight room. We also have a tendo that we'll travel with um, for certain times of the year. Uh, in addition to those things, we have an isokinetic squat machine. That's a really cool device that gives us uh, immediate feedback on, on what uh, they're able to do in the weight room as far as producing force at a, at a fast velocity. Um, what else do we have? We, we have some Kaiser equipment, so that gives us our power outputs. We do have a K-box with a K-meter. Um, we actually have a radar gun for the med ball wall, and so and we haven't been able to set that up as, as we wanted, um, but we did buy one of those, and so we played around with that. Uh, what else are we using? Uh, that might, well, and we have force plates too, obviously. So we do have force plates, and then uh, we do some motion capture throughout the year. But I wouldn't say that, that has really helped us from a uh, understanding if we're doing too much perspective. That's really just um, something that we're trying to keep track of from a movement quality perspective. But those are probably all the technologies that I could think of, at least uh, off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. So in terms of reducing it, well, mitigating the risk of injury. Obviously, with with a horrendously packed schedule, lots of traveling, um, keeping the guys actually fit is um, is essential. So, is there anything that you do um, that's maybe unique or um, different perspective that to, to try to keep the guys on the court? Oh, good question. Uh, I don't know if there's anything that we do that's unique or special. Um, you know, I, we really I think pride ourselves on. We just try to do the the, the basics, uh, yeah. and we try to do them consistent, and we try to do them well. Um, so, uh, one thing that I've I've definitely gained an appreciation for over the course of my year in the NBA is um, really just uh, just understanding how taxing the schedule really is on some of these guys, and understanding that hey, we may not need three to four sets. Like maybe if we're doing one to two sets of a couple things uh, at times, that might be enough and that might be okay. You know, um, if you were to ask me four years ago, you know, if, if a player walks in and he does, you know, there's, there's certainly times guys that come in and we'll, we'll have kind of, um, you know, set a set or set one, set two, set three. And that might be like our prep package, a lower and, a, and an upper body pairing. And so you might come in and do two exercises, like a mobility in a trunk. You might hit, um, a squat and a hinge pattern, um, and then you might hit a push and a pull, and you might only do two sets of five on, on some of that stuff. And if I saw that four years ago, I would say, well, that, that didn't do much. Like, that wasn't training. Um, but now when I see that and I, and I consider the context, like there may be very good reason for that, uh, and that may be actually the best thing we could have did because if we did any more than that, we might have been getting uh, some diminishing returns or, or worse, getting into systems that – Really, we want to help recover, and now we're we're breaking down tissues, and they're getting sore. Um, so I'd say, like that's that's been one big transition as far as like understanding risk of injury and ways to mitigate it. It's um, I think really appreciating that sometimes less is more, and, and that's okay. Um, 
but I don't know if there's anything, you know, that we're doing different. I think a lot of, a lot of teams have, you know, similar technologies. Um, I think we, we probably have, uh, the most within our weight room, uh, I think throughout the NBA and, and part of that is probably just because we have one of the newest weight rooms. Um, and so as NBA teams come in, they kind of take, you know, they'll take pictures of our weight room or, or ask us about those things. And, and we've seen some of those things added. Um, but I don't know if there's anything necessary that we're doing different. Uh, I mean, we pride ourselves on loading. So like, that's, I think one thing we've, we've kind of been able to gain a reputation for around the league is, you know, we definitely train our guys. Um, and so we, have, we, we love nothing more than them picking up some heavy weight and, you know, certainly as we get into, into September, that's a conversation I just had yesterday with, with a bunch of our guys. It's like, hey, now's the time that we really got to get in there because, you know, we got five weeks until camp. Uh, and then once season starts, you're, you're pretty much playing catch up all season. There's no opportunity for you to develop a foundation of strength. And for me, um, you know, a good foundation of strength is the best way to mitigate injury risk, especially when you start to get into like January, February, towards the end of the year um, as as you, as the accumulation of load is beginning to break down, guys, if you had a you know a piss poor training program through the off season, um, that may come back to bite you. And it doesn't always. Like there's definitely players in the NBA that don't do a dang thing all summer. They come to camp, you know, a week or two before, and and they just don't get hurt, right? And we know those athletes are out there. Um, but you know, I, I definitely if I if I was a gambling man, I would be putting my money on a good off season training program is the best way to mitigate risk. So. Uh, through September, we really enjoy that time because, you know, we're, we're trying to get after it with guys. Um, and even through October, honestly, through preseason, like, you know, I, I care more about building your foundation of strength to last through the season than how many points you scored in October 1st preseason game. So we're loading guys and we're telling them, look, I don't, you know, to be frank, I don't really care if you're sore tonight when you play because I'm worried about season and I'm worried about all-star break and I'm worried about April. Uh, so, you know, we, we load guys and, uh, you know, that's that's not to say anything bad about my colleagues in the NBA, but I think throughout the NBA, we, we're one of the teams that load them more than, than most, I think. And that's an area that we definitely take pride in. And so if, if there's anything unique, it might be our ability to, to appreciate loading and really get after it while also understanding uh, loading during season and how to manage around that and not do too much. Mm-hmm. Nice. Love it. So one last thing before I let you go, because I know you're in a little bit of a rush. Uh, keeping players fit and fresh, the ones well, the ones that don't get the minutes on the court, how do you go mm-hmm. about doing that, especially when you've got uh, travel, jumping on planes, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, yeah. It's, it, does, it definitely has its unique challenges. And I've, and I've been fortunate to, to work with coaches who, uh, who really understand – that side and obviously you know they might not talk about it in terms of like exposures to max accelerations and decelerations and that stuff but um you know coach the nba are pretty good at understanding hey if a guy's not playing he probably needs to play and so uh it starts with some of that with like hey coach like these dudes should probably just play three on three like those six haven't played many minutes in a week like just let them play three on three or or those four haven't played let them play two on two or hey those two haven't played hey coach can we play two on two to where two of the coaches are actually just passers and they're just throwing entry passes and they're letting those guys get after it. Um, so as often as I can, I try to get guys to get their exposures through playing um, because in the NBA, all they want to do is play basketball anyway. So if there's areas where we could accommodate that, um, you know, take for example, as we're leading into summer league uh, just this past June with, with summer league kicking off in July, uh, you know, about three weeks out, I have a conversation with, 
you know, one of our lead assistants and it's, hey, coach, I could do a lot of conditioning on the court, but guys really don't like that. Why don't we instead just bring players in to place, you know, five on five with them and let them get their running during playing? Um, and now they're working on their game. Now they're working on shot shooting when they're fatigued. Now they're working on having to actually play defense um, when they're tired because, you know, a guy who's probably not an NBA player is coming at them and, and now their pride is taking over. So it starts there with conversations with coaching about how can we get them to play and expose those things. And then what we also do, obviously, is, you know, if a guy's not getting his accelerations, we just take them right off the court after practice. And it's, you know, hey, player X, um, player Y. Sometimes it's me telling my assistant, hey, just grab those two players. And if I know we need three max effort accelerations, then which gives us also decelerations because an NBA court isn't that long. So you really don't have chances to slow down, you know, gradually. Like you're going to stop pretty abruptly. Um if I know I need three max effort accelerations with decelerations, then I'm probably programming five of those. And it's just grabbing two or those two or three players that aren't getting the minutes we want. And it's, Hey, I need, I need, because I know I need three good ones. What I tell them is I need five um, because NBA players likely are going to give you uh, a poor effort on one or two of those. And so we'll say, Hey, I need five of those knowing that I'm probably going to get three good quality ones. Um, and that's a way that we get around some of that stuff. And, uh, and, and oftentimes it's just a simple conversation like, hey, man, you're not getting these things. There's a good chance that you might get in the game tomorrow. And there's also a good chance that once you check into that game, there's going to be a breakaway. And because you're nervous, you're going to try to dunk it. And so you're going to take off as fast as you can. And then you're going to plant and jump as hard as you can. And because you haven't been doing those things, we probably should do those things before you get to that point. Nice. Uh, it's, it's come up a couple of times that with um, tricking players into doing things saying they've got five but actually three will be fine like mm-hmm. it but no thanks for giving us a, an insight into into what you guys do over there um where can people keep up to date what you've got going on or get in touch or just see what see what you're up to yeah uh i've been trying to be better about twitter so i'm on twitter so um you know people want to keep up with me there uh that's at dr ramsey nigem um and then instagram i, I posted more stuff on instagram um than Twitter and I don't know if that's just over time that's kind of where um, I've been able to put more content more easily but that's at dr.ramsey.nigel um, trying to get back into, into the kind of the website area get, getting back to blogging and that stuff so hopefully eventually I'll I'll have some stuff up there for kind of what kind of like stuff like this right like what, what do you actually do what does that actually look like um, and, and really give good examples of some of that stuff. So hopefully I can get back to some of that stuff. But for now, yeah, Twitter and Instagram are where I hang out most. Sounds good. Ramsey, thank you very much. I'm going to let you go because I know you're a busy man. But thanks for giving up your time. Really appreciate it. Absolutely, Rob. Appreciate you having me. It's uh, it's actually it's, it's a cool honor because I've been following uh, this stuff for some time. So it's cool to finally be able to get on it myself. And years ago, you would have never asked. So it's, it feels uh, full circle for me to get on here. Good. Thanks, mate. Appreciate that. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Ramsey. So massive thanks to Ramsey for giving up his time and giving his, his, his insights into what's going on in the NBA. But also thank you to Val Performance and Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode. So if you haven't already, make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player. And every Thursday a.m. UK time, you will get an automatic update of the new weekly podcast. So I've got some really cool guests coming up over the next couple of weeks, which I'm sure you will uh, really enjoy listening to. But thanks again for tuning in. Thanks again for your support. And I'll chat to you soon.